Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In episode 15 of the Nerd Lab, I have the honor to interview one of the designers who is already on the next level. I'm going to interview Kevin Riley, designer of Aeons End, one of my favorite games. From my experience as a dungeon master, I know that you always need a good hook. So listen to that short excerpt from the interview. And that simple but powerful design principle leads to a lot of interactions in Aeons End being very straightforward. Kevin shares with us some incredible design principles that I'm definitely going to apply to my game design as well. And to be honest, I think every hard game designer should follow these principles. In addition to that, Kevin explains the reasoning and the design process of my favorite mechanics of Aeon's End. And as if that weren't enough, Kevin also tells us how his personal step-by-step -step process looks like in the earliest design phase, from the initial idea to the first prototype. Due to all of that amazing content, the show is a little bit longer than usual. So let's get started right away. Have fun with the interview. And now for you, the main quest. Today I have something very special for you. In today's episode we have a guest who inspired me significantly to start my own quest as a game designer. He is a former StarCraft 2 pro player, game designer of my favorite deck builder and definitely in my top 5 games of all time. His game is probably the most mentioned game on this podcast and especially his turn order mechanic has been praised to the fullest. So most long-term listeners should already know who I'm talking about. Please welcome with me Kevin Riley, designer of Aeon's End, who is joining me today all the way from California. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me on. Today we are going to talk about Aeon's End, your cooperative deck building game which was a huge success in 2016 and had some very successful expansions on Kickstarter thereafter. Mm -hmm. uh, the latest Kickstarter campaign is probably yeah, just live when this episode goes online and um, we are going to talk about a bit more about all the exciting new features that await us later in this podcast episode. Sure. But with every show, I also try to give a general and practical advice that helps the audience and myself to grow as a game designer. The idea is to talk about the earliest phase of game design today with you and learn from, from your experience that you have made during designing Aeon's End. Sure. The question that we are going to tackle today is how do you come from your initial idea to a playable game? But before we dive into our main topic, we would like to learn a little bit more about you, Kevin. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us how your journey as a game designer began? Sure. So I'm 29 years old. I grew up in Chicago, went to school in California, and ended up now I'm in San Francisco uh, working full-time on board game design, mostly Anzen. And my history with game design has actually, it, it goes back a long time. When I played 
StarCraft 1, WarCraft 3, I made custom maps in those games. And I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but it was the first touch I had of any kind of real game design. So in StarCraft 1, I uh, modified a custom map that I was a big fan of called Battlecraft, and I kind of made my own version of it. Uh, I played a lot of StarCraft 1, but I can't remember the name of the maps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then in, in WarCraft 3, I actually made two of my own custom maps. One was like a, a Dota-inspired game that was... It was designed to be played in like 10 or 15 minutes, so it was a much shorter, more condensed experience. The map was much smaller. Uh, you leveled up faster. It was easier to kill things. Made some custom heroes for that, and made another map in Warcraft 3, made some maps in StarCraft 2, but it wasn't until kind of early 2015 when I actually started doing board game design. Um, and that, that all began because me and my girlfriend really liked Dominion, and I had some ideas about, like, what do you, what do you think Dominion would be like if it emphasized these parts of the games instead of what it normally emphasizes? And we, we modified some rules, and we, we tested that a little bit, and we enjoyed it a lot. And that was how Aeon's End really started. So that sounds like an awesome journey. So since when are you a full-time game designer then? So I retired from StarCraft II professional gaming late in 2015. And when I retired, I immediately started designing Aeon's End full-time. So you retired in 2015, and I think Eons End came out in 2016, right? Yeah, late 2016, I think it was. Must have been a hell of a ride from 2015 to 2016. Yeah, it was early in 2015. I took a couple of breaks from StarCraft. I wasn't playing well, and I was um, I was having some some mental issues, just like depression, and and it was a it was kind of affecting and inspired by my performance with StarCraft. And during some of those off times, that's when I started working on making this board game. And then it was going well enough that I finally decided to retire and, and moved into that. So the first several months were really hectic as we were trying to figure out like what this game was actually supposed to be. And then getting ready for the first Kickstarter. My first ever Kickstarter was exciting and uh, nervous. There was a lot of nervousness around that time. <laughs> That's very interesting that you uh, retired from StarCraft 2 because it was a lot of a lot of stress, <laughs> and then you uh, directly went into the next tactical project with uh, creating a board game. Different kind of stress. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm sure it is. So, can you please um, tell the audience a little bit more about Aeon's End? What is the game about? For the for the few people that do not know Aeon's End, from my listeners. Aeon's End is a cooperative deck builder, so you're all working together. You're breach mages, so you're uh, kind of wizards that know how to use these portals to power your spells, and you're going to use those to dis to defend your city of Gravehold, which is kind of like the last bastion of humanity. It's it's a little bit like, uh, if you're familiar with Attack on Titan, they've got a kind of that last city, and then except the, the Nameless, which are the, the big boss monsters that you fight, They're they're big. They're more like almost like kaiju, like giant monsters that tower over your city, and you and your your team have to work together to defend the city against these threats. Um, mechanically, it's a it's a supply pile based 
deck builder, so more similar to Dominion than something like Star Realms or Clank. And each game you play as a unique mage, so you've got a unique starting deck, you've got a special ability that you have, uh, and then you'll fight against a unique nemesis. And, and one of the biggest hooks of Aeon's End is how different each nemesis is. And that was something we tried to do from the very beginning of, like, when you fight a different nemesis, in many regards, it should almost feel like playing a different game. Yeah, and I can I can second that. This is definitely true. So playing a lot of Aeon's End, uh, all of the, the nemesis I fought, they feel very different. Mm-hmm. So, and thank you for giving a short introduction there. You already mentioned some aspects of Aeon's End that make the game so successful in my eyes. And when I prepared myself for the show today, I thought about what impresses me the most about Eons and from a design perspective. And I came up with five things in particular. And if it's okay for you, I would like to go through yeah. these five points and hear from you what the design process for these mechanics was like. Yeah, let me know. Okay, so the first one is um, what I like is how the game creates tension and strategic decision making by using the variable turn order deck. In Eon's End, uh, the order is determined by the turn order deck. And every turn, you draw a card on the deck to see whose turn it is, the nemesis, or the enemy, or a player's turn. And this alone creates a lot of tension when you flip the turn order deck card and pray that not the nemesis is acting before you in this turn. So how did you come up with the idea of a variable turn order deck? So... There's actually um, what is that game? Tiny Epic Defenders uses a similar mechanic. It's I don't think it's a deck, but it's it does have this idea of like each round the turn order is different, and so we were inspired partly by that. Um, and ba- basically, what happened was we had a version of this game where it was almost too deterministic. You don't shuffle your deck. You know the supply piles. The only thing that was random was the Nemesis deck. And so we were looking at ways to maintain strategic depth while uh, introducing more variability. And, and somebody on the team suggested this, and we tried it once, and it, it just worked. It was an incredible addition to the game. Yeah, and it's I think it's easily the number one thing people mention when they talk about uh, about Eon's End. But in addition to that, you also have these uh, time-shifted spells, I would call them. Um, you prepare your spells in front of you in one of your breaches, but the actual resolution of the spell happens one turn later. That right. means the information about how your turn will look like is visible for all your allies all the time. And if you now combine the time-shifted spell casting mechanic with the variable turn order deck, you get some kind of incredible mechanic for strategic decision-making, at least from what I felt. Uh, sometimes you are represented with a choice of manipulating the turn order deck. Uh, and you have to decide who is going to take the next turn. We have the chance to increase the possibility to, to take the next turn. And this creates an interesting discussion in the game that doesn't last too long. Um, but the decision you have to make is based on the visible spells that are out there on the table. Um, there is not a lot of new information added once you have to make the decision. It's all there on the table and everybody can see it. 
and you can decide if it makes more sense to get the heal from one player now or that it that maybe you need the damage that another player can can make in this situation have you thought about or tested other turn order mechanics during the design phase something more like an initiative value for each spell for example or something in that direction no the the only two turn order systems we tested were round robin and the turn order deck and one of the One of the things about design that's important is knowing when something is good enough so that you can move on and actually finish the game. Um, the game is never going to be perfect no matter what you do. And so you're, you're, when you're designing, when we were designing, we're always looking at, like, is this in line with the level of quality that the rest of the game presents? And with the turn order deck, it has some potential problems, but it was good enough. Uh, it created interesting gameplay, and so we, we didn't really explore other options because we didn't feel like we needed to. And how did you come up with the idea of prepping spells uh, using preachers that you have to open before you could use them? So this, this was a really early design decision. Of um, We were heavily inspired by Dominion and Star Realms. And one of the things we don't like about Star Realms is that on your turn, you don't actually make very many decisions. You basically put your hand on the table, you count up how much money and damage you do, and then you choose one or two cards to buy. And so we wanted to take something that was kind of like that but add additional tension points of how do you spend your money and, and uh, not just do you buy cards, but what else can you do with, with it. And we also didn't want to make it so easy for you to just turn your deck into pure damage and then play everything every single turn. We wanted there to be more of a progression. So the breaches, the limited number of breaches means that you can't endlessly draw cards and just play all your spells because you need one, one breach per spell. And the fact that you have to spend money to open them adds an additional lever to the economy. Yeah, that's interesting because that's actually uh, my number five on the lists I, I love about Eon's End. And um, yeah, maybe we go with this one uh, right now. It's uh, resource management. And in Eon's End, players are, you call it money. I, in the game, I think it's called Ether. Yeah, it's And ether. you generate Ether by, by playing the gems from your hand. Right. Uh, and then you have different possibilities to use the Ether. You can use it to buy cards from the supply, what you will mostly do in the early stage of the game. Then you can use it to open preachers, what we just discussed. At least in the games I played, this happened mostly in the middle part of the game. And then you can use it to charge special powers, from of which each character has one. And this happened often in the later stage of the game. So you use ether you have in the early stage, in the middle stage, and in the end of the stage, all, all the time for different activities. Was this intentionally planned that you always have something to do with your ether and that how you use it changes during the game? So one of the, one of the obstacles that we encountered early on was if we make the game too long, then there's it gets kind of boring because there's nothing to do. If the game is too long and your deck is perfect, all your breaches are opened, like it, it should just end. And 
so the ability the ability came out of kind of a different reason but the length of a game of Anne's End is largely determined by how long does it take someone to open all their breaches and kind of finish their deck and then we designed the Nemesis deck around that and it was determined basically through playtesting and empirically the ability came because we wanted the mages to feel different and we wanted there to be more uh, exciting moments because the game is light on combos and it's light on card draws, there don't tend to be a whole lot of turns where something really spectacular happens. And so the abilities are a way to promote that. Okay. And do you think having three different uh, ways of using or spending ether is right, the right number? So was it intentionally to have that you have three, exactly three possibilities? You could also have used the resource, for example, to pay for spells when you, when you, when you play them. But instead, playing spells is free in Eon's End. You only have to pay them when you buy them from the supply, right. but you do not have to pay any ether when you play them. Have you considered using ether as a resource for casting spells? So we steered away from that just because of trends in deck builders in general. There there aren't a lot of deck builders where you have to pay to play cards. It's usually you just pay to buy them. And so that's... Because we used Dominion as our initial base model, like when we started a long, long time ago, there were certain assumptions that we just kind of stuck with. So I don't know that we ever tested where it costs money to play spells. Okay. The Another aspect of Eon's End that I really like is how it encourages team play. In many situations the game gives interesting choices to the players. So you sometimes have to decide how to assign the damage that is done by the nemesis. For example, you can decide to do do the damage to the town that you have to protect or that one of your characters uh, takes the damage and who is going to take the damage there. And you also have uh, some kind of wild card in the turn order deck that allows players to choose who is taking the next turn. Um, at least when you play with three players from in the in the standard game. So, what was your reasoning behind the mechanic of letting players assign the damage? Mm, so, the biggest thing is simplicity of rules. Of let's say we have all these effects. So, it, it's just a general rule in Anzen. When there's a tie, the players choose how the tie is resolved. If it's the player with the most gems and most multiple people have the most gems, the players choose. And any other resolution feels like it adds additional rules and complexity and takes away agency from players. Like it's just a bad, a bad trade-off design-wise. So by giving the players more agency, simplifying the rules, we create a more engaging experience. And cooperation and teamwork has always been a central focus of Anza. Early on in testing, when we demoed the game, one of the things that I would observe is like if people don't communicate and they they do things, they kind of step on each other's toes or they overlap strategies, they should lose. The game is designed to be hard enough that if you don't work together, you should not be winning. And that has been a design goal from the very beginning. Have you ever had problems with alpha player problem or quarterbacking? It happens a little bit, but the game is complicated enough that I don't see it very often. Um, there's a, you know, if you don't if you don't show your hand to other players, there's a fair amount of information they don't have. And because of the complexity of your deck, 
of like knowing the order in which things are happening, it's hard. It's very hard for a single player to track everybody's deck, what's in it, what's coming up soon, what they've trashed, what they still have. And I feel like the alpha gamer problem is most an issue when there's total information where one player can look at the board and they can say, I know everything you know. And that's very hard to do in Anza. So, but you also mentioned uh, the two missing, the missing points, uh, why I love Eons End so much. And the first one is um, simplicity. Uh, and I think simplicity leads to a very smooth gameplay in Eons End. Even if you are in a situation in which you have an advanced board state with many nemesis cards on the board, I never really felt overwhelmed by the game. I never had the feeling of losing track of what's happening. How did you manage to keep the game so clean. Any design principles you followed or was it just the result of cutting a lot of features during an extensive playtesting phase? So, yeah, so there's a few design principles. The biggest one is cards should not do things when you're not directly interacting with them. That is interesting. And we have a few exceptions to that, but we are very, very careful when we add anything that does. But basically... If I'm not currently reading a card, I shouldn't have to think about it. And that simple but powerful design principle leads to a lot of interactions in AMs and being very straightforward of just, how do I resolve the Nemesis turn? You just read the cards one by one, and you do whatever the card you're currently reading says, and you don't have to worry about really anything else. And we extend that to the player cards as well, of there's not... There's a, we do it a little bit more on the player cards, but there's not very many places where you have to remember what spells you have prepped when it's the Nemesis turn, for example. Yes, the cards are relatively simple, um, each individual card, and you, you're right, there are not many states you have to track from different cards. And it's also very rare that you learn new things on your turn that influence what you are going to do. So you are yep. able to plan your turn um, ahead while the other player is taking his turn. Yep, and that's that's very intentional. It's a major, another major design goal was no new information once your turn has started, which means no card draw, no revealing cards, no cycling cards. We break that rule here and there also very sparingly, but that is one of the keys to what makes Anzen play so smoothly, especially compared to a lot of other deck builders. Okay, and that brings us to the the final aspect of the game why I really love Aeon's End, and that is specialization of characters. In Aeon's End, every deck that you craft feels different, even though every player buys his cards from the same supply. Can you tell us why the mm -hmm. game still encourages different play styles and deck building decisions, even if the market is the same for everyone? So part of it is you start with a unique character, and each character is slightly biased towards different playstyles. Some characters will have a ability that's strong early game or late game, or some characters their ability will be it'll heal you or it'll help you finish the game faster. Everybody's got a unique starter card, and that lends a little bit more personality. So, so before you even begin, some characters make more sense to be built in, in certain ways. Uh, and then the other thing is the nemesis attacks you in a lot of different ways. And so if everybody does the same thing, you end up kind of getting blindsided by the, the spot that you're not covering. And usually it comes down to, if you don't have someone who goes early game damage, you'll get overrun before anybody's engine gets online. But if everybody goes early game damage, 
when if you don't end up winning quickly enough, eventually your decks are outscaled by the boss. He's playing something with 15 or 20 life, and you're only doing three or four damage a turn, uh, and and you quickly get beaten down because nobody's nobody's developed that really strong endgame engine. And so basically, the the different phases of the game of like it has a distinct early, middle, and late game because of the escalating power of the the enemy you fight, as well as the different ways that he attacks you, contribute to the fact that you need to specialize in different ways and you can't have everyone do the same deck. By escalating, um, you mean that the enemy acts in different phases. So in phase one, he does different things than in phase two or three, for example. Yeah, well, his, his nemesis cards become stronger as the game goes on. Because he goes from tier one to tier two to tier three. That's that's specifically what I mean. I also had the feeling when I was playing that the number of cards available in the um, in the supply pile were not enough for every player to take the same route to go with the same strategy. Yep. So um, sometimes only one or only two players were able to uh, go into the same direction, and the third player did not have uh, the cards available because there was not well just not enough of them in the supply pile. So was this intentionally as well? Right. So just to clarify, in deck builders like Dominion, there's 10 cards and there's 10 piles, uh, plus several piles that are always in the game. Like you always have copper, silver, gold in Dominion. In Aeon's End, your base economy is part of the nine piles that are in the game. So you have half-ish as many supply piles as you might in other deck builders, and each of those piles only has five cards in it. So there's kind of two reasons that this happened. One reason was we wanted to enforce the cooperative aspects of the game. And one way to do that is to literally make it impossible for more than a certain number of people to do the same strategy. And, and so by limiting the number of cards in each supply pile, we were able to achieve that. The other reason that this happened was we needed to make the game affordable, and there were too many cards with 10 in each pile. So that was one way we're able to stuff more content into a, into a box and give the player more bang for their buck. Because in, in most games, you wouldn't care if there were 10 copies of a card. Like the extra five, six, seven copies don't mean anything. So by limiting those piles to five, we're actually able to give you more unique cards uh, per, per game. Well, I have the exception here. During one of the nemeses uh, uh, who tries to, to mill you, so he wins once all the cards in the supply pile are are gone. I would have loved to have 10, 10 cards per, <laughs> per, per, per spell. Yes, of course. <laughs> so thank you very much for giving us uh, the insight of the design process of Eon's End and um, all of these great mechanics. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the design process in general now, sure. and especially about the very early phase of designing a game. Right. The phase in which you create your initial idea and turn it into your first prototype. And at the beginning, there's always an idea. And last week, I heard an episode of the Board Game Design Lab podcast in which Bill Lasek spoke about five different starting points for a game. The Two best-known starting points are you could start with a theme in mind um, or you could start with a mechanic in mind. Mm -hmm. For example, I want to design a game about the rise of the Roman Empire would be starting with a theme in mind. Sure. And um, I want to design a deck-building game would be starting with a mechanic in mind. Yep. This differentiation is also what Mark Rosewater calls top-down versus bottom-up design. Yep. 
But Bill Lasek added a few more possible starting points um, in the podcast. Um, he also mentioned that you could start to think about a specific moment you want to create for. The one memorable situation in a game, maybe a dramatic end where you smash all of the other players. Or you could also design for a playing experience for a certain ambience that you want to create on the table. Mm -hmm. Or the last one he mentioned was that your design could be publisher-focused from the beginning. So many publishers have specific game profiles they are looking for right. on their website and you could be you could use them as a starting point. So how do you typically start the design of a game? Sure. So with Aeon's End, it started as a fun project. We didn't have any real dreams of getting published. We didn't care if other people liked the game. We made a game for us and Since then, we've we've adjusted our approach. So I design a lot of games with my girlfriend. Uh, Anzen was a co-op design for the vast majority of it, and we've been working on some other projects together. And what we've the approach we've taken more recently is we design via constraints. So what that means is we'll figure out how many players should it support, what's the theme, what's the demographic, what are mechanics we're willing to consider, how how complex should it be. Because basically when you think of, I'm going to design a game, it could be anything. And you can't design anything. You have to design something. And so by applying constraints of maybe you want pitch it to Rio Grande, and that's a major design constraint. Well, that, that already narrows down the type of game you can make a lot. Um, or if you say, I want to make a game and it needs to support six or more players. Like, okay, that, that is already giving you a lot of constraint. Um, so what we try and do is we narrow down as much as possible what the game will be, who it's for, what it's about, and then as we make prototypes and designs, we keep those pillars in mind so that future design decisions are consistent with our original vision. And we'll reassess every so often. Sometimes the original vision is wrong. We'll go back and we'll say, okay, this, this game does not exist. It, it cannot exist with the constraints that we imagined, so we'll We'll take a subset, we'll say these four constraints of the eight that we came up with are great, let's make this game, and then let's figure out what else it needs. Okay, you talked about constraints and design pillars. Do you write them down in some kind of vision statement? Yeah, so we have a whiteboard on the wall uh, in my apartment, and for the last two projects what we've done is just kind of sit or walk or pace in front of that whiteboard and write down all of these constraints, and we'll just leave it there so we can reference it during the design process. Okay, and with your idea in mind and on the white, the vision on the whiteboard, what is the first thing you do? Maybe an example would be would be easier. So, player count, complexity, and time are usually the ones that we'll start with because they're the the most constraining. So, let's say write down we want this game to support two to four people. We want it to take 15 minutes per player, which means we want it to be like an average complexity. So it's probably not quite a gateway game, but it's not as complicated as something like Scythe. Uh, and we'll write those constraints down. And then we'll decide, well, what, what do we actually want this game to be about? Are we, are we trying to make it for a specific company? Nah, let's just make something that's fun for us. I had this idea. I kind of like this mechanic that they use in... Uh, let's say, village, where they have a bunch of cubes in a bag and they put them out and those are 
kind of your worker placement stuff. So so maybe we make some game that uses that mechanic. It's got the bag with cubes from village. And and we'll just go along this process of well like what what theme makes sense with that or what other mechanics might might fit well here. And we'll just keep writing things down and writing things down and thinking about it until we get this big list, the whiteboard's totally full, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of pick our favorites. We're like, well, with all these constraints that we made, these two don't really fit with the rest, so let's erase those. And then we'll kind of look, is this coherent? Does this make sense for a, a first prototype for an initial idea? And we'll, we'll talk about that and move from there. Okay, so you are brainstorming on the, on the whiteboard and you are coming up with constraints and then you erasing them. And how many aspects or how many constraints do you typically have or do you do you want to have for your game before you start with the next phase? Um, so, like, the required ones are player count, time, complexity, uh, things like, is it for a publisher, theme, and then you, you usually want, even if you're trying to go theme first, you usually want at least one or two mechanics that feel like they support the theme. So probably you're looking at a minimum of six to ten constraints uh, that can help you lead into kind of your first prototype of what is a potential way we could satisfy uh, everything that we've thought about. Okay. What I what I did is um, I recorded a vision statement for my game mm-hmm. uh, because this was uh, the the first episode of this podcast. And every once in a while, I go back to this uh, to this part of the podcast episode and listen to it. This helps me quite quite a bit to make the decision when I have some kind of uh, Yeah, designer block. Do you do you do that something like that as well? Yeah, for sure. And and that's kind of where it comes back to the constraints of like, you could make literally any game. There are, there are infinite possibilities. And by putting as many constraints as you can and reminding yourself of them when you get stuck or you're having trouble making a decision, you can usually narrow down your decision space. Like you have a problem and you've thought of three solutions. One of them makes the game more complex. One makes it less complex, and one adds additional playtime. And you look at your constraints and you go, well, we're trying to make a game that's this complex and we're already there. So we can't use the option that makes it more complex. The game is a little short, so why don't we take the option that makes it a little longer? And like, that's that's what you're trying to do, is create this foundation that can inform all your future decisions and having it in a place in a way that you can refer back to consistently over the process helps a lot. Okay, and Then what what happens what happens next in this phase? Typically, countless ideas come to your mind: ideas of mechanics you could add to your game, ideas for specific cards you could create, goals you could implement, enemies, quests, narrative. So much. Um, how do you keep track of all your ideas that come up during that early design phase? So some of it goes on the whiteboard, but I usually start a Google Doc for each project that I work on, and I have one specific doc that I just write down any ideas that I have about the game. And they all live there so I can reference it later. Okay, and then what comes next? Do you start writing things down on pieces of paper to create cards, or do you design them on an Excel spreadsheet, for example? So from all the work we've done on Aeon Zend, I actually can turn a spreadsheet into cards in a very short amount of time. So we don't do any prototyping where we write on things anymore. I'll just 
put it in Google Sheets and, and turn it into cards. Can you tell the audience and myself how you do it? What kind of software do you use for it? So we use a combination of Google Sheets, LaTeX, and Python. Basically what we do is we download the CSV, which is the Google Sheets spreadsheet. I run a Python script that we wrote a while ago. That turns all of the, the CSV into LaTeX code. Then we run it through LaTeX, and LaTeX makes cards, and I just print that. It is a very convoluted, complicated way to make cards that I do not recommend other people use, but because my girlfriend is a mathematician and was very is very familiar with LaTeX, and we're both comfortable with Python, it works for us. In my scientific career, I always try to get around uh, LaTeX, and um, yeah, I managed that uh, successfully. <laughs> so I use uh, I use uh, the program called uh, Nandeck and Google Spreadsheets, and I really like how this um, how easy the process is. So sure, you have also have some kind of programming language that you can use there, and um, yeah, it it does what uh, what it is supposed to do. Okay, so. Let's say you have brainstormed and generated some amazing ideas for your game and maybe have created the first cards and prototype versions with your with your process we just discussed. How do you really get the first prototype of a game or how do you decide what goes in the first prototype? How many of the cards, for example, that you came up with? As little as possible. So how ugly is your first prototype? Well, it comes out through LaTeX <laughs> and it's printed. Right, so it's, it's all text. Okay. We go through, it's very functional, and we use game icons for pictures. But basically your goal with especially the first prototype is what is the minimum amount of work and effort and cards and content that is needed in order to test whether or not you actually have a game. And it's important to do that because you're trying to save yourself as much time so you can iterate as much as possible. Like there's there's no reason to spend two hours making your first prototype only to play it for three minutes and decide that literally the entire idea is is nothing. There is no actual game there and you have to start over. Um, so if you can spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes instead, that's that's always going to save you time and allow you to make a better game faster because you'll be able to iterate more quickly. Yeah, that's one thing I... I had to learn the hard way. Um, I started by creating prototypes um, on pieces of paper, um, and I was quite mm -hmm. happy with that. And then I uh, changed my process, and I tried to do it um, digital with Tabletop Simulator. Right. Because uh, my intention was that um, I could playtest with friends of mine that are not living around the corner, or I thought it would be... Uh, faster with in with my uh, with creating my prototypes and I could iterate more, but the opposite was the case. So it took me quite quite a while to to make minimal changes like uh, changing uh, a value from two to three, for example, would take me ten to fifteen minutes, and right. on a printed card it would take me a second. So um, I had to learn this the hard way, but uh, with my process I've currently in place, I'm I'm quite happy. Mm. So do you also? Adjust on the fly, so if you see that the value should be three instead of two on on a card for a resource, for example, do you do you change it on the card or no, how do you do it? So it depends. If in the past I had already decided that something should be changed and it didn't get changed and I made a mistake, then yeah, I'll just change it during the play. If I'm if if 
during the game I decide, yes, this is... Uh, so basically it's, it, it is a judgment call of how much this change is affecting the playtest. So if some number is too high or too low and it's basically warped the entire playtest, it's like a black hole, it's sucked everything into it and everything is revolving around this one particularly overpowered card. I don't need to spend a whole t- playtest figuring that out. So I'll either call it early or if the damage is already done uh, and restart with a adjusted value or I'll just change it during the game because I'm not getting useful information from the playtest. If it's something that I'm unsure about, I'm like, well, this this card is probably too good, but I'm not sure. And we're playing and it's like, it, it does seem like it's too good. I usually just let those finish um, and make a note of it and then think about it and, and discuss later. Okay, and with whom do you play the very first playtesting session? So when you print out the card from with your LaTeX, uh, do you do you try it on your own, alone? Do you try it with your girlfriend? Or um, do you take it to a playgroup? Usually with my girlfriend. Sometimes it's just I'll invite someone over and I'll just be like, hey, I made this game. It's probably terrible. Will you play it with me? And I think that's that's a way I've tested a number of ideas. And I always present it like that because I want to uh, lower their expectations, which should result in a better time. Like I, I want them to go into it knowing that it hasn't really been playtested. I'm not confident in the design. Do not expect a real game here. And, and I think that helps. People tend to be more upset by having their expectations not met rather than like the objective quality of an experience. Have you ever playtested only parts of your game? So, for example, if you made changes to the, to the combat system of your game, for example, that you only playtest the combat for, without maybe the, uh, the acquiring phase in, in, in Aeon's end. So you do not, do not build your deck, you start with a build-up deck and only test um, if the combat resolution mechanic uh, that you changed had a big impact, for example. Yeah, that, that works nicely, but it's usually when you're farther along in the process. It's rare that you'll be early on in designing a game and be confident enough in some part of the game that you, you feel like, yeah, we could just we could just skip that. We don't need to do that at all because it's perfect. Usually the game is not perfect in any place until almost the very end. And when you playtest your game, how, how do you track what people are saying during the during this session? I write things down like a therapist. <laughs> are they playing on a couch? Usually at a table. <laughs> okay. But maybe I should use a couch. And um, then let's say you have uh, a list of 10 or 15, 15 things that you would like to change. How do you decide how much to, to change from one test run to another? Do you change everything at, at one point or do you make it more incrementally and change one thing at a time? It's a, this is like a case-by-case judgment call. Usually I change as much as I can, but you can get confounding variables. Like if you change too much for a single thing, you probably want to limit it. Um, and, and the other thing is, and this goes back a little bit to the constraints of like, there are a lot of changes you could make and you want to assess those changes and make sure that the ones you make are consistent with the overall vision of the game. Okay. 
Anything else that you would like to, to add regarding the early phase of game design? The last thing is just don't be afraid to iterate and don't be afraid to start over, where starting over doesn't mean starting from nothing. It means starting at some intermediate point. Of, let's say you, you came up with an idea, you've got 10 constraints, you tested it a few times. Most of it is working, but there's a few parts that, that don't. It's okay to cut those off, trim the game down, go back three or four steps, and then rebuild it from there. And the time you spent testing a game that won't actually, testing a game or mechanics that won't actually see the light is not wasted time. You've learned something, and you can use that to make a better product in the end. Yeah, I really like that advice from yours because uh, some some weeks ago I had to make some major changes to my game and it felt terrible to be honest because I spent so much time developing this mechanics and um, I was attached to them um, mm-hmm. but they just didn't didn't work out. I, I really like your advice. Anything anything else for the design phase? No, I think that's it. It's a long complicated phase. We didn't talk about everything but Hopefully, if you take some of the stuff we've talked about today, it will help you a lot in your own designs. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I really like your your starting point with all the constraints. I will definitely go back to to my vision statement and uh, look at a at my constraint that I have defined, and maybe I found something that uh, that you mentioned that I, I missed in that place. Sure. Um, but you mentioned the time that the design the early design phase takes, so. How long does it take for you normally? How long did it take for Eon's End, for example? Eon's End started in January. I pitched it to Action Phase Games in June at Origins. And we finished development on it basically the following January or February or March, something like that. Uh, and in the course of that time, Eon's End started from a variant of Dominion, to a one-versus-one competitive game all the way to a fully cooperative game that it actually ended up being. Would you say that this was rather fast or slow process compared to other games? It's definitely slower than I design games now, but it's probably about pace for a first design, maybe a little fast, because I was working on it full-time, and a lot of board game designers don't. Yeah, you already mentioned the transition from Eon's End that you made during the first year. Now there's a new st- Kickstarter coming up, uh, the New Age. And mm-hmm. this <laughs> this sounds like, like there's coming a lot of new things to the game. So what is the New Age and what can people expect from your latest Kickstarter campaign? So as you, as you might imagine, there are new mages, new nemeses, new player cards, new mechanics... In particular, it's the new age because we are continuing the story some years after Anne's and Legacy, introducing a new cast of characters. Many of them are descendants from Breach Mages you'll be familiar with. Uh, and we're also introducing the Expedition System, which is kind of like a shorter campaign-style uh, way to play Anne's End. So you'll play three, four games in a row, and there's some continuation of mechanics, Supply piles from one game to the next. You'll be getting special treasures, which will make you more powerful from game to game in an expedition. And the nemesis will also be getting more powerful to keep pace with you. So is it some kind of legacy game as well? So it's it's not legacy because there's no permanent changes. It's not self-contained. In that, you cannot use other content. Um, 
the the base game for Anzen the New Age is a self-contained game in that it's standalone. But Anzen Legacy, you cannot use other Anzen products in the Legacy campaign. Expedition mode is a way for you to integrate all Anzen content you own and randomize it however you choose. Okay, please please tell us a little bit more about how the integration of the of the old cards work there. How do you make sure that the old nemesis work when you have all these new spells and how when you progress during this three campaigns you said, how do you do the old nemesis work in that scenario? So Like all Anzen content, we've tested it extensively uh, with old content, and we're confident that the new mages, new player cards are on the correct power level, so if you play an old nemesis, you'll get the challenge you expect. Uh, and the way you upgrade the nemesis is by introducing stronger basic cards, and so those will work no matter what nemesis you're playing against. Okay, are there any new mechanics you can talk about? So we have two new mechanics. One is called Attach. Uh, all of the cards that have Attach are relics, and they have the word Conduit in their title. And the way a, an Attach works is you place it on top of a Breach, and it modifies what that Breach does. So some of them give additional damage. Some will give you money when you cast a spell from that Breach. Some will, One of them will bounce the spell you cast back to your hand, uh, and you can attach these these conduits to any breach, your own, allies, open, closed, doesn't matter. And so it's another way to to add a little bit more teamwork, a little bit more cooperation. That sounds a little bit like enchantments in magic, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a little bit like an enchant creature, except it's enchant breach. I really I really like that. The other new mechanic is echo. And essentially spells with echo will be cast twice when you cast them. And so whatever effect is on them will be doubled. And the really cool part of Echo is any modifiers to that spell will also get doubled. So some of the new mages have unique breaches. One of them has a breach that's uh, Gravehold gains one life when you cast a spell from it while it's open. So if you cast an Echo spell from that breach, Gravehold will gain two life instead of one. That seems like you used quite a bit of new design space with, uh, with the, the new age. What would you say in general How much design space is there in Eon's End for for additional uh, new expansions, for example? There's an infinite amount of design <laughs> space. My my creativity is boundless. Okay, so how can you make sure that only two mechanics, for example, now made it to the new Age expansion? I'm sure there must be 50 in your head. How did you make sure that only two come to the new expansion? So we tested, I think, about eight new mechanics for this expansion, and we culled it down to two. We just decided that these were the two that worked the best. They were fun with each other, and uh, while we do want to make the new expansion fresh, we also want to make sure it appeals to fans of Anzen, which means we don't, we're not trying to redefine the whole game. When you play Anzen the New Age, if you like Anzen, you'll like Anzen the New Age. And if you don't like Anzen, you probably aren't going to change your mind with this expansion um, because we want to, you know, a lot of the people who are interested in this product are people who like the previous product. So we don't want to go too crazy on there's this new, this, this new mechanic and now there's this board and now you have to rescue puppies and, and things like that of it's still Anzen, 
there's just a little bit more spiciness to it now. Okay, that sounds, sounds great for me. Anything else you would like to mention about the, the new age? So with each, with each product, I've been particularly proud of certain parts of it. With Legacy, just the fact that we, we made a Legacy deck builder, creating a mage, really cool. With the new age, the mages that we created for this expansion, I think, are, are awesome. We pushed the design space in a way in so many ways that we had never done before. Um, we've got really complicated mages. We've got, we still have our, our couple accessible mages, but we have multiple mages that have their own decks. One of them kind of, two of them kind of have their own upgrade path. We've got a whole bunch of new unique breaches for these mages. Just a lot of really cool new mechanics. Uh, and the other big thing is we've spent more time and resources working on the lore, the narrative for this game than we ever have in the past. Uh, I guess a comparable amount to Legacy. We just don't, we have a shorter narrative, so we've packed a lot more lore and description of this world and the description of these characters onto each of the mage mats, onto each nemesis mat. So there's, there's a lot more to learn about what's going on in the world of Ansend. So before we come to the end of today's episode, I would like to ask you one last question. On which mechanic that you created are you most proud of? From the new expansion or overall? Oh, gen and overall, all the Aeon's end part. Mm, probably the breaches. They do so many interesting things for the game. They are fairly simple. They're not the simplest thing, but they are simple enough, uh, and they provide a huge amount of interesting decision space, Uh, interesting complexity with a minimal amount of fussiness or, or tedium. Okay, and maybe I already mentioned that I will have the, the first large play testing session for my game in about two weeks. Any tips of how I should prepare myself to get the most out of it? Be flexible, have an open mind, take lots of notes, and ask your friends for lots of opinions all throughout. Thank you so much, Kevin, for coming to the show and sharing all the valuable insights of your design process of Aeon's End. Sure. Thank you. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot for their own journey today. It was an honor for me to talk to you. And uh, I wish you all the best for your Kickstarter campaign, which will definitely be linked in the show notes of the show. And you at least convinced one backer today. Great. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Kevin. Yep. Bye. Bye. Finally, the conclusion. Whoa, that was a great show today. Kevin was an incredible guest in the Nerd Lab. He shared so much useful advice with us that I will definitely have to follow up some of it. I will definitely have to compare his design constraints with my personal vision statement. But what I definitely found most valuable are the design principles he followed in creating Aeon's End. The following three principles stuck especially with me. The first one is cards should not do things when you are not directly interacting with them. The second one is no new information once your turn has started. And the third one is making it impossible for a certain number of people to do the same strategy. Another answer that really stuck with me was when we were talking about prototypes. Kevin said that 
one of the important things about design is that you need to know when something is good enough that you can move on and actually finish the product. Since perfectionism is my second biggest enemy after procrastination to complete projects, I can only recommend that you take this advice to heart. At least I will do that. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you are a fan of Aeon's End or you got interested in it today, please check out the current Kickstarter campaign of the latest expansion, The New Age. Link is as always in the show notes. I would also love to follow up the discussion about valuable design principles in the comments on the website. So what do you think about Kevin's design principles? Are they useful for you? Or do you have other principles that you could share with the NerdLab community? Thanks a lot for spending almost an entire hour with Kevin and me. If you want to connect with me, you can visit nerdlikeaboss.com or find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook with the hashtag nerdlikeaboss. Thank you for listening and until next week, keep shooting for the moon, fight the nemesis and nerd like a boss.